Well, good morning, Arbor. How are we doing this morning? All right, good to see you. Uh, if, uh, if you're coming in, we are continuing a series that we're calling Tested. The reason we're doing this is, like it or not, we will all be tested throughout our life. Whether you have faith or not, you will be tested. Um, what we wanted to do, the message that we kind of want to communicate, kind of the whole preface of this thing is we want you to know that we don't feel like when you are tested or God allows you to walk through some test that he's trying to punish you. Uh, he doesn't do that. That's not how God works. In fact, it's not oftentimes uh, when you're experiencing testing that you're doing something wrong. Sometimes it could be when you're doing something right, and that causes the attention of the enemy to pay attention to you. Uh, Jesus is proof positive of this, that the approval of heaven does not absolve you from attack of the enemy. And if you were here last week, we talked about his baptism and how it jumped into his temptation from the water to the wilderness, from the water where your, 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 your identity is confirmed. This is my son in whom I am well pleased, right? We've had an identity that's confirmed. He's told us that he loves us, that we are his and that he is pleased with us. But immediately, once you jump out of the water, you almost always land smack dab in the wilderness, which is a time of testing. And friends, I wish I would have seen this verse last week because it was perfect for what I talked about. And I didn't see it until this week. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead off with this thing. But just if you were here last week, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So it says this, Bible says this, it says, remember all the ways in which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness. Where was that last week, right? It was probably still in the Bible last week as well. These 40 years, in the wilderness, these 40 years, that he might humble you. Now here it is, testing you to what? There is a reason behind this. To know, to know what was in your heart. Friends, testing exposes what's in here. Testing exposes what's in your heart. Another way to say that is that testing brings to light what already is there, what is already there. It uncovers what's inside. It reveals the reality. Truly, when you walk through testing, it is educational, but most times it is, and we know this, uncomfortable. And oftentimes it'll happen when you least expect it. For me, one of the tests that I walked through totally unexpected, was at my bachelor party. So I got engaged, big moment, celebration, then comes the bachelor party. Uh, I have friends that I grew up with who don't know Jesus. In fact, out of my wedding party, all of them but one uh, did not know Jesus. And so my best man gets to plan the bachelor party, and my friends from high school, who I dearly love and are still dear friends of mine, they, they had this dream, this goal, this idea that goody two-shoes Jake, we are going to take him to a strip club on his bachelor party, for his bachelor party. They've told me about this, not just for a little while, for years leading up to it. And you need to understand something, that I am a pastor, 
And that's not a good idea to be going to a strip club, you know? And they're like, well, it'll be good for you. I'm like, what? How is it good for me? You know, kind of a thing. So um, when it came time for me to have my bachelor party, the people in charge were these friends who wanted to take me to a strip club. And I'm like, guys, it's not going to happen. They're like, just try it once. I'm like, no, I cannot do that. Uh, you know, this is not going to happen. I don't want to do that. So I had one guy who was on um, my bachelor party, uh, like my bachelor, like, like my groomsman, who was a believer. And you know him. His name's Bob, Bob Lee. And, uh, or some of you know him. Anyway, I told Bob, you have got to make sure that this doesn't happen. Whatever else they're planning, this cannot happen. Because they've been talking about it for years. And so, night of the bachelor party. Here's what we do. We started off at Whirly Ball. Anybody done that? Whirly Ball, it's, you know, this is amazing. Here's a picture of it right here. Uh, right there, you'll notice, this is all the guys at my bachelor party. I am the handsome one in the middle, right, with the spiky hair. Good looking right there. Um, Bob is the one that's actually taking the picture. What I didn't understand is I did not understand that they had that as a cue. The moment that the picture was taken was a cue for them to pounce on me, this picture right here, that they would attack me in that moment. And I'm friends, I'm telling you, it was vicious. There was, I'm not kidding you, there was punching, kicking, wrestling. It was like eight on one type of thing. I kicked my buddy Gabe in the face so hard and it felt so good. You know, it was, I mean, it was, it was amazing. So they zip tied me, they took straps, tie down straps, and they strapped me to a chair. They literally, I'm not kidding, in other pictures you could have seen it, there are chains that are wrapped around me. And they put me in this chair and I am stuck there, cannot move. Then they put a goggle, like a, like a goggle thing that they blacked out, and I can't see. I can't see a thing. And Bob comes up to me, and he says, I'm sorry, I did my best, right? They're your friends, and this is the best that I could do, right? And then pretty soon, my friends, as we're moving through this process, as they're loading me up in the back of a pickup truck, right, with no canopy, just the back of a pickup truck, they're loading me in the back, and Howerton, who's going to be speaking here next week, Mike Howerton, the pastor of Overlake, he's like, I'm sorry, man, like, we tried, we really tried. Scott Hetherington, who speaks here on occasion, was there, he's like, we tried, right, but they, but, so they take me in the truck, they load me, and then we drive for the longest time. I'm in the back. They at least had Jeremy, my best friend, back there, the guy who's planning the whole thing, right? He's back there, and he's telling me, like, dude, it's going to be all right. It'll just be like a Band-Aid. You just do it once. You'll be glad you did it. And I'm like, screw you, dude. This is not what I want to be doing right now. I am a pastor. I don't want to be doing this. I love Jesus. I love my wife. I don't want to see some other lady. We're not doing this. And so we drive in. We pull into the parking lot. And I can, it is, I can hear the music from the parking lot. The bass is going. I remember it was 50 Cent. I remember the music. <laughs> Don't ask me how I knew it was 50 Cent, but I knew it was 50 Cent when we walked in. And they came in, you have to do a cover charge and get your ID. So we stopped at the bouncer, the guy at the front. And he said, do you have your ID? And I could talk and I could hear. So I'm like, no, I do not have my ID. It is not on me. I do not have my ID. And then Chris, a dear friend of mine, like didn't even miss a 
beat. He was just like, well, will this cover it? And he handed him a $50 bill. And I'm like, come on, right? And then they send me in. And you guys, it smelled, I could smell the smoke. There was like, you could smell the alcohol in that place. It was loud. It was chaotic. It was crazy. The music was so stinking loud. I was there, I don't know, maybe about five minutes sitting there. And my friends, they tell me that I look so dejected in that moment. I've just, I've lost. I'm out of control. I can't like, I, I, am, I can't do anything on my own. And then the announcer, the guy over the speaker says, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we have a bachelor in the house. And everybody erupts. Woo, bachelor in the house. I'm like, yay, right? And they lift me up onto a stage. And then they ask this lady to come out. And this lady comes out, and remember, I can't see a thing. I can feel everything. This lady's touching my legs. She's touching my chest. She's got a feather, right? Um, she's got all this stuff going on, and, and, I'm, and it's just like I am dejected, so upset, angry and upset of what's going on, wondering where Bob is in this whole entire thing. And then all of a sudden, the guy on the microphone says, all right, let's take his mask off. And when they take my mask off, I realize I am sitting in Overlake Christian Church Chapel, okay? And in the audience is Pastor Mike Howerton. There is, you know, there's Scott Hetherington. There's all my friends who left me. And there's, I still remember Pastor Josh McQueen is like, woo! Like, he's so excited. They got me. They slayed me. I thought from my, I, with all my heart that I was at a strip club. The, the lady with the feather was Chris, all right? Chris touched me in places I never want Chris to touch me ever again. They went so extreme that they actually lit cigarettes in the chapel and brought in alcohol and females who I don't know so I wouldn't recognize their voice to play the trick when they came in there. They got me. Now, best prank ever, and I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker, but it was afterwards that Howerton was having this conversation with me. He says, I was worried for you, right? This is my boss, my pastor. He'll be here next week. He's like, this is my, um, I was worried for you because what if you enjoyed it, right? <laughs> what if all of a sudden you just gave in and you just let, you know, like the ladies like, and Jake's like, woo And we're all sitting there watching this. It could have been bad, you guys. It could have been really bad. I was put through a test that I didn't even know that I was walking through, right? And today what I want to do is I want to talk about a test, about a guy who didn't pass the test, a guy in the Bible who was tested in a great way, but he failed the test. And I have been drawn to this passage for years. His name is the rich young ruler. And, and so what I want to do is I'm going to ask Nika to stand up. We're going to read this passage, Mark's account, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. And then what we'll do is we'll break down what she reads. So Nico, if you would stand on up and read. Let's, uh, let's break down that passage. What I want to do is I want to do it expositorily. I want to walk verse by verse, line by line, word by word through that process. And then we'll take a section and then we'll go through, we'll talk about that, see what we see. Um, but at first, let's pray and then we'll jump into it. Jesus, your word is perfect. We pray that you would give us 
the right eyes to be able to view Scripture, your words, properly. And so, Lord, speak to us now. Speak to us through your word. Use me in whatever way that you can, but allow all of us in this place to have the ears to hear the message you want us to hear today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, rich young ruler. Let's start at verse 17. Here's what it says. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his feet before him. Good teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A couple things to notice right from that, from the very beginning is he's referred to as a man because we don't know his name. The synoptic gospels, which the synoptic gospels are the first three out of the four gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke. They're called synoptic because they are similar in what they write. They all mention that this man is wealthy, that he is rich, that he has great possession. Matthew takes it a little bit further and he says that this man is young. And then Luke actually says that he's a ruler, probably some sort of political position. Put all three of those together, all of those, and you got the rich young ruler. That's where his name comes from. He asks a question, and there's two flaws in his thinking. He's betrayed by them. The first one is this, is he simply thinks Jesus is a regular old teacher. He says, good teacher, good master. Basically what he's doing is he's putting Jesus on the same level of all the other great communicators that have come forth and all the other great communicators and teachers that were of his time. That's the first mistake he makes. The second one is that he thought it was possible to earn his way to heaven. What must I do? Notice that, emphasis on the I. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This way of thinking is not strange to us today. This is still commonplace, especially outside the church. Most people outside the church believe in order to go to heaven, you must be good. You must be good enough. Do good at this. If you're just good enough, then you'll be in heaven. Friends, that's not the case. It is truly not the case. You don't get to heaven by being good. You get to heaven through Jesus Christ. And Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that is who enters into eternity. And so this, this man, you know, Jesus calls this man good teacher. And Jesus responds, and I love his response. I've always loved his response. He says, he asks a question. And I love that because anytime Jesus gets, you know, he, re- he gets asked a question, he responds with a question. And he says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Jesus is saying, only, there's only two possible things Jesus is saying here. Number one is he's saying, I'm not good. Or he's saying, I am God. Those are the only two options that you have here. Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good teacher? Is it simply because, you know, because God is the only one who's intrinsically by nature good. And so is there something that you see in me? When you look at me, do you notice something different? Do you see something inside of me? Jesus is not denying his deity here. He's actually affirming it. What he's doing is he's given this young rich man a chance to proclaim that he is the Messiah. He's almost baiting him. 
And he's saying to him, do you recognize who I am? And the guy could have simply said, yes, I've watched you teach. I've watched you walk around. I've heard your messages. There's something different about you. You are the promised Messiah. You're the Christ that has come to save Israel. But he doesn't say that. Jesus goes on. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. Jesus jumps straight in to the commandments. In fact, he mentions six out of the 10 commandments. And some of you probably know this, is that the 10 commandments are divided into two parts. The first four deal with the vertical of the Ten Commandments, our relationship with God. The first one is, you know, thou shall have no other gods before me. So that's dealing with your relationship with God. It's vertical. The remaining six, the last six, all have to deal with horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another. And those, interestingly enough, are the ones that Jesus mentions in this passage. He doesn't mention the vertical ones at all. He only mentions the horizontal ones. And so how does the guy respond? The guy responds by saying, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Which is honestly, you guys, pretty darn impressive. If this is true, and this guy has kept all the horizontal commandments, you know, since he was a little boy, that's impressive. I don't think I could say that. In fact, I'm pretty darn sure I can't say that. I know I can't, right? Thou shall not murder. All right, I got one, right? I'm doing good. You know, thou shall not commit adultery, two for two. Thou shall not steal. Crap, right? I stole gum when I was a little boy, from a, like, a, like a grocery store. And my mom made me, she turned the car back around and made me go talk to the manager. She's a good mom. But I can't answer these things, right? Honor your father and mother. I, now there's times when I have definitely not done that. So let's just assume for the current moment that this guy is telling the truth. Even though what he's saying is pretty darn near impossible, let's say that he's telling the truth and that he has upheld all of these horizontal commandments. Verse 21 one of the best verses in the entire book. It's tremendous. He says this, Jesus looked at him, looked at the guy, looked at the rich young ruler and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. How cool is that? What kind of a look would that be? That's amazing. This is how God sees us. He looks at us and he loves us. Whether you know him or not, whether you follow him or not, whether you believe in him or not, Jesus looks at you and he loves you, right? That's what he does. That's how he feels about you. He loves you. And I, you know, a lot of people have speculated, well, how in the world do you decipher a look like this? How, do, how does Mark know that Jesus looked at him and loved him? The only thing I can think of, and what other, other scholars would say inside of here, is they would say that, um, that Peter is the one giving Mark the information. Most scholars believe that Peter was the one that gave the information to Mark. Mark was not actually a disciple, so he wasn't there to see this look, but Peter was. And Peter saw another look from Jesus, right? You guys remember that? There was a, it's defined in there. He denied him three times, rooster crows. Jesus and Peter make eye contact. 
And maybe, just maybe, in that look, Peter knew that he looked at him and loved him. And that's why he was so disappointed. And so he recognized that look when he saw it, when it happened to the rich young ruler. Who knows? All we know is that Jesus looked at him and loved him. But, here's what he said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. It's important not to misunderstand what Jesus is saying right here because this is very important. Jesus is not saying that people, that we should be called to poverty, right? That we should be called to philanthropy. This is not saying to get rid of all of your stuff and become poor and then to earn your way to heaven. That way of thinking defies the very context of this passage and defies the very context of this book. He is simply, here it is, exposing the true heart of this self-righteous young man who says he's held every commandment since he was a young boy. He says, I've kept them. He is being tested, is what he's doing. When you go to the dentist, right, when you, have a, um, when you have a hurt tooth, I don't like going to the dentist, although I absolutely love my dentist. He's a great man. And if you need one, let's talk afterwards, okay? So total stud. But anyway, if you have a hurt tooth, what happens when you go to the dentist? What is the first thing that the dentist does? You walk in, you sit down in his chair, he grabs an iron hook, and he pokes right where you say it hurts. And he asks you a question, which is always weird for me when dentists do that, right? They, they poke you in the mouth and then they ask you a question. Does this hurt? You know what I mean? Like, you know, does this hurt here? And you can't talk to them in that moment, but he pokes it and it's like, yeah, that hurts in that moment. He's probing for a place of sensitivity. He's probing for a place that is in pain or that is broken or that is not working. It's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is probing this guy into seeing what's inside his heart. He's not saying that you're saved by the law. Go sell everything and then you will be. He's actually using the law as a probe to expose this man's heart and to show him something that he cannot see. Something that he cannot see. It says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will be, have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus got personal and he got personal in order to point something out that the man did not see and that was that he's serving another God. The man said, I've kept all the commandments. All the six that you mentioned, right? All of them, nailed them. But what Jesus is saying is that there is one commandment that you are not seeing, that you are not upholding, and that's the first one. Thou shall have no other gods before me, and I can prove that simply by this. Go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And the guy's like, well, I, I can't do that. I, I, I'm not, I, I can't do that. And because you can't do that, it proves that money owns you, that your wealth owns you, and that your possessions are in possession of you. You serve a different God. And Jesus is simply using the law as a probe, like a dentist would use a hook, to this sensitive area. And he's poking in on something, and it hit this nerve. And verse 22 might be the saddest verse in all of Scripture. Truly, 
This man, it says right there, at this, the man's faith fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. The young man did not hear what he wanted to hear when he came that day. He didn't hear what he wanted to hear. He walked away sad. The actual Greek in that is more of grief. He walked away grieved. And he walked away from Jesus. And catch this, he literally walked away from salvation. He walked away from God himself in service of another God. The rich young ruler failed the test. He failed the test that he was given. And remember, testing brings to light what is already there. Jesus is simply uncovering what was already inside of his heart. He was exposing his heart. So guess what? So that the rich young ruler could see it. Jesus already knew about it. He was exposing it. He was testing him so that he would know. Catch this. Another verse in Deuteronomy says this. The Lord your God is testing you. Why are we tested? To find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. That's why we go through tests. is to find out what's inside of here. How does this apply to us? Let's look at verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Did you know that the average annual income for someone who lives in Woodenville in this area is $127,740 a year? Do you know that averages out to about $491.30? Right around there. Compare that to half the world. Half the world lives on less than $5.50 a day. To give you a perspective of what that means, it means that it takes half the world an entire day to make as much money as we make in five minutes. It takes half the world to make as much money as we make, right? They take all day as we make in five minutes. We are in the top 7%, friends. And you're like, well, I'm not rich. I'm here to tell you, actually, you are. Why well, live in this type of culture? Yes, but you're still rich. You are still rich. How does this apply to us? We are the rich young ruler. And I don't say that, friends. Hear me, this is super important. I don't tell you that you're rich to make you feel bad or to make you feel guilty because you shouldn't. God put you in this position. He has blessed you. So don't run out of here right now and say, Jesus and Jake told me to sell everything, so here I go, Right? It's not what I'm saying. Here's why I share that information. This is really important. Because I think that there's a correlation in this area between the affluence that we experience and the receptivity of the gospel. There's a correlation there. The rich young ruler simply failed to recognize his need for Jesus, and I swear to you that we live in the same situation. This is our world right here. It's all around us. Why would we ever need God when we have not just all of our needs met, but almost all of our wants met? When we can fix all of our problems by swiping a card for the most part, like I mean real problems, like shelter and food and most of the time health, those type of things. Why would we need God 
when we can solve them ourselves. My point is simply this. I think we live in a culture and a community of rich young rulers. If you have ever tried to share your faith in our area, you would recognize it's a really difficult thing to do, is it not? Nobody is receptive to the gospel. It's good news. Why don't you want to hear about it? Because I'm fine. I have all my needs met. I have everything that I need. Okay, but you're missing. No, I'm good. If you ever try to share your faith and tell somebody about Jesus, you get this wall. And the reason you get this wall is because we're all rich young rulers around here. We have everything. And there's a failure to recognize who's in front of us and what that is offering. The reality is money comes with problems. And some of the saddest, most depressed people or the most people that struggle are some of the richest people. And if they were to dig just a little bit deeper, they would find that what Jesus is offering is more than money could ever fix, right? But nobody wants that because we're all okay at the moment. Verse 24, it's a popular verse. It says the disciples were amazed. Now the word amazed is actually a little bit misleading. Uh, The Greek is thumbeo, and it means astonished or terrified or actually frightened. So they were thumbeo at these words. They were frightened at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I have heard a lot of comments, read a lot of opinions, heard a lot of sermons on this passage right here and how it is to be interpreted, right? And, and, and I'm intrigued by many times that the, that the preachers will try to explain away the implausibility of Jesus's illustration here. Some of you may know what I'm talking about, that they would say that the eye of the needle is not actually a needle that you put a piece of thread through, but it is a smaller gate next to a bigger gate. How many of you have heard that before? Okay, so you've heard that before. What they're saying is this, is that there's a big main gate, and when that gate closes, when nightfall comes, there's a smaller gate. And they're saying that what will happen is that beasts of burden or like camels or some sort, in order to get through that smaller gate, have to bend down, right? These, and then they have to take off the baggage, that was on the back of this bird, and then they can squeeze through there. So what they're saying is that the interpretation of this is that you, you, you have to take off all your baggage and just come to Jesus as you are. Now, there's, there's a problem with that. They're saying it's not impossible, but it's difficult. The problem is with that interpretation is no such gate has ever been found. Historically, there's been no evidence of one actually existing. But the bigger reason that I think that that is not an accurate interpretation is that Luke tells us, in this, he tells this story as well, he uses the word for eye of a needle, or he uses the words to mean a surgical needle. A surgical needle. That's what he ends up using it for. And so remember, Luke is a doctor. And so it is beyond any doubt that what Jesus is referring to is a needle that you would stick a thread through, not some small gate that's next to a big gate, which didn't exist. And so we have to have the proper interpretation here. So what is Jesus saying by saying that? Can you get a camel, a full-size camel, through the eye of a needle? Maybe through a cartoon, but not in real life right? Jesus is saying it is impossible. 
And that is the point. It is impossible to get to the kingdom of heaven on our own. You cannot buy your way. You cannot earn your way into heaven. It's just not possible. And so verse 26, the disciples were even more thumbeo, amazed, terrified, and said to each other, who then can be saved? And there, there's a reason why the disciples are baffled and confused and concerned at this. There's a reason why they ask the question, then who can be saved? Because they were raised in a Jewish culture that believed and that were taught that if a person was rich, it was because they were in right relationship with God. They were raised to believe that if you do good, then you will do well financially. And if you're doing well financially, that means you're doing pretty good with God. And I think that mentality still exists to this day. I do think that mentality still exists to this day in the sense that some people think, well, if you're in right relationship with God, then God is going to bless you. And you even think they'll bless you financially. So there was this movie years ago, one of my favorite, maybe 50 some years ago, called Sound of Music. And Maria, the main character in that, she gets to the end of the movie, and I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's 50 years old, so you missed your time, okay? <clears throat> she gets to the end, and she's going to marry Von Trapp, right? And she's going to marry him, and this is the moment. She's going to marry a rich man, and she'll no longer be in poverty. And she says this line here. She says, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. And that thought process still exists, that we're going to be blessed, either with love or finances, that we're going to be blessed because we're in right relationship with God. That's not the case. The idea that a good person will be rewarded with wealth is not true. Prosperity is not proof of God's approval, although that is what they thought back in ancient Israel. That was their belief system. And so when the disciples heard this, and they heard that it's impossible for a rich man to go into the kingdom of God, they thought, well, then who can make it? There's no hope for us. Last verse, Jesus looked at them and said, with, a, with man, there is, this is impossible. With man, this is impossible. Let that sink into you today. Let that sink in. Because if you're thinking, I'd like to go to heaven, right? What can I do? What must I do? There's nothing you can do. It's the same message as the rich young ruler. It's impossible, but the great news is that verse doesn't end there. It says, but not with God. All things are possible with God. What is a human impossibility is a divine certainty. Salvation is a gift. We are taught that in Ephesians. You cannot earn it. You simply have to receive it. That is the good news. In fact, I've said it many times, that is the great news of the gospel. That is the news that was offered. That is what was really offered when Jesus was standing in front of the rich young ruler. He didn't care about all the money he had. Jesus simply cared about the fact that he was not put first in this man's life. Thou shall have no other gods before me. And I don't know what God that would be in your world. But God simply wants a relationship with us. That's the great news. And so we will be tested. Come what may, it's going to be a testing time. If you're in a good season now, celebrate it. Some of you might be in a test in this very moment and you walked in here with a heavy, heavy, heavy heart. 
Some of you, it's been going on for a while, right? It's test after test after test. My hope is that we can pass these tests. Rich young ruler did not make it. Biggest test I ever experienced in my life, bar none, was right here in this picture. This is the moment, this is the room where I was sitting when we were told that Maggie had terminal brain cancer. It hit hard. In that moment, there was no way, there's no way to take that news. I remember feeling frustrated in the moment. I remember going into the bathroom and shutting the door just to get a moment. I remember going up to the wall, putting my hands on the wall and saying, God, what the heck? What the heck? Are we, why is this? Why? Why, 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 why? This is a test I didn't ask for and I never wanted. And I learned something from that excruciating test of taking her and holding her hand from the point of diagnosis to the point of death. I learned something that I want you to hear, and I think it's super important, that when you come to a test, you have a choice to make. You can choose to run to God, or you could choose to blame God. And the reason that my wife and I made a conscious decision that way on the way home, truly, to not blame God for what's happening, because so many want to do that. Bad things happen to good people. Why does God allow that? I don't know. I'm here telling you I don't know. But I do know that when he, he is a good God, he is a good teacher, that's what I do know. But you have a choice. I had a choice. We had a choice. We either run to him or we blame him. And the reason we chose to run to him and cling to him in our hour of need was simply because he had proven himself prior to that moment to be trustworthy and that we could trust him. And so we did. Through every step of the process, there was test after test after test. I don't believe, hear me, this is, this is important. I don't believe that God just puts you through those tests. Maggie's diagnosis and death was not simply a test. God allows tests. It's the enemy who attacks, right? But God allows tests to happen. I don't have the answer to why all the time. I do know this. On the back end of that, I felt tested. On the back end of that, even now I realize, oh my gosh, my faith is real. If it was ever real before and I didn't know, I know now. I could walk through something as horrific as we walk through and then realize, oh my goodness, we stood the test. And when you are standing in a place where you are being tempted to a place where you think you can't take anymore and I can't take another shot, and I can't take another hit, and why, 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 God, here's my challenge for you, is that will you turn, this is a question, will you turn to God in your times of testing? You can blame him, you can, it's not going to get you very far. Or you can cling to him, which is really what I think he wants us to do in the whole time, is just to turn to him and run to him and hold on to him through those moments. And so will you turn to God in your times of testing? My hope is that you will. But sometimes, friends, you just know this, you never know until you're in that situation. You just don't. 
And maybe you failed in a situation. Maybe like the rich young ruler, you have been given a test and you did not pass. You failed that test. I want to tell you this as well. This is important as well. It is not too late. It is not too late. Hear that message. It is not too late. Just because you failed that test does not mean you're going to fail the next one. We don't know what happened with the rich young ruler. We don't. We do know that he went away sad, but that wasn't the end of his life. Perhaps he lived a few more years, just a few more years, until Jesus died and was rose again, and all of a sudden there's this uprising that he was the Messiah, and yes, he is God. Perhaps he caught wind of that, and he knew, like, that was the guy I went to. And there was something different about him. Who knows? The rich young ruler could be sitting in heaven right now and one day we get to meet him and he's like, yeah, that sucks that they copied that part of my life. You know what I mean? Because the rest of it went really well when I put my faith into him. You don't know, right? You, you, we don't know that. And so it's not too late. If you missed the mark on a test, if you failed it, it's not too late. You still have a chance to bring and draw close to Christ again. You do. If you're breathing, you have an opportunity to draw close to Christ. And so it's not too late to pass the test. Tests will come. It's going to happen, peoples. I don't like it. You don't like it. No one likes it. Right? But sometimes testing is the only way that God gets our attention and he uses those at times. He doesn't cause those. He uses those to draw us close to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.